This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. It's Sunday, July 14th. I'm Margaret Brennan, and this is Face the Nation. Tensions are high this Sunday morning after President Trump announced a crackdown on undocumented migrants in cities across the country. People come into our country illegally. We're taking them out legally. It's very simple. As the political battle over how to handle migrants seeking asylum in the U.S. and what to do about the deplorable conditions at some detention centers gets even more divisive. No great nation tears families apart. Vice President Mike Pence toured detention facilities in McAllen, Texas Friday, defending immigration officials' treatment of detainees. Are they taking good care of you here? Do you have enough to eat? But even he concedes... We are not a terrorist! It's a crisis situation that needs urgent attention. Uh, to be honest with you, I was not surprised by what I saw. This is tough stuff. Can leaders put politics aside to fix the broken immigration system? We have 40 days here. We haven't taken shower for 40 days. We'll talk with acting head of the Customs and Border Protection Agency, Mark Morgan. Plus the number two Democrat in the Senate, Richard Durbin. And former Homeland Security Secretary, Jay Johnson. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. And as CBS News launches a week of network-wide coverage of the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 mission to the moon, we'll look back at how we got there. Plus, we'll talk with NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine about what's ahead for space exploration in the next 50 years and beyond. It's all coming up on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. As we come on the air, residents and local officials in nine major U.S. cities are preparing for agents from the Immigrations and Customs Enforcement Agency, commonly known as ICE, to round up immigrants who have either missed a court appearance or who have been ordered removed from the United States. We begin today with Mark Morgan. He is the acting commissioner of U.S. Customs and Border Protection, CBP, which enforces immigration law and patrols the U.S. border. Good morning to you, Commissioner. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, I understand you're at CBP. You were previously at ICE. Uh, the president has said those who will be arrested today will either be put in prison or sent back. What can you tell us about how many people will be rounded up and where they'll go? 
So the, the, the numbers are really going to be left up to ICE. And so I really want to try to stay away from the operational details, specifically uh, focus on the numbers or cities or where they're going to be going out. But again, I think what we need to do, part of this, this narrative is we need to be intellectually honest when we're going forward with this, is that the individuals that ICE goes after, uh, and they do this every single day, are not individuals that are here undocumented. They're individuals that are here illegally. And in this case, their priority has always been and it will be to go after those that are criminal aliens, meaning those people are here illegally and and have committed additional crimes against American citizens. But also part of that priority is to also go after and, and apply consequences and enforce the rule of law to those individuals who had due process and received a final order of removal from a judge. And they still remain here illegally to, to maintain integrity in the system. We have to apply consequences to everyone. So can you say, though, whether there will be family separations? If someone is arrested, their children come home, either they're U.S. born or they're just coming home to find a parent who is now in detention. What happens? Can you avoid that situation? So, of of course, the, the design is not about family separation. That's not the intent. Never has been and never will be. The intent can you is avoid to enforce it? the rule of the law. There, there are challenges, absolutely. But I can tell you, the men and women of ICE, they, they are true American heroes. They, they are mothers. They are fathers, brothers, and sisters. They're going to apply this uh, with, with humanity and compassion. There's a whole host of scenarios that could go. I'll give you an example for one. If they run across a mother who came here illegally, had due process, had to order removal, but she's currently in her third trimester uh, of pregnancy. Of course, they're not going to apprehend that individual. They're going to give her a, a paper, a notice to appear, uh, and, and come back later uh, when it's appropriate. Where will these people go? Because as we've been talking about, and in the facilities you run, there's this crisis of overcrowding. Is ICE putting these people in centers that are already overcrowded as well? No. So, and, and, and I'm glad you asked that question because there's a lot of confusion with respect to the holding facilities that Customs and Border Protection hold that are meant just kind of like a police station. They're not meant to be, nor they were ever designed to be long-term holding facilities. ICE the facilities that they have are. And so families, for example, will go to family residential centers that are specifically designed to house families on a longer term basis. And it's a very different environment than what you'll see from a CBP Border Patrol holding facility. President Obama deported about three million people, uh, President Bush about two million, President Trump's far below that. But there is this question of why these arrests are happening now at a time when you have been talking about overcrowding at a time when you're in the middle of a reelection campaign. It seems to be, to many critics, politically motivated. So I can't t- speak to you from, poli- from a political side. I can speak to you from a law enforcement side. And I can tell you, Margaret, one of the largest incentive pull factors for these people is you grab a kid that is your passport into the country. And once you get in the country, you're allowed to stay. If we don't apply interior enforcement action consequences the, to those that have received due process. Right. But and why did the president order, announce it? This is a law enforcement action. He announced it. You'll you have to ask the president on that. But all I can tell you is I support this 100 percent. This is a, an essential consequence that we need to apply to help take that element away, that pull factor, so they'll stop making the dangerous trek Mm -hmm. and risking their lives. The president this morning uh, put out a series of tweets that I want to read to you or part of. He suggested that foreign-born female members of Congress need to, quote, go back 
to, quote, the places from which they came. Who's the president talking about and how is this helpful if you're trying to get Democrats in Congress to work with you? Uh, Again, you're going to have to ask the president what he means by those specific tweets. You don't know who he's talking about? I, I think that you need to talk to the president about his specific tweets. What, what I what I will tell you is that we absolutely have a crisis on the border, 100 percent. And Congress, I, I can tell you uh, unequivocally, Congress has failed to do what they need to do to adjust this crisis. We've been pleading with them for a long time, uh, and we've been on the Hill asking for a long time. You fix the floor settlement mm-hmm. agreement, you fix the TVPRA, the catch and release, and 85 percent of this crisis ends the next day. That's what we need Congress to do. Do on a bipartisan effort. Which is why I asked you if it was helpful or not to make comments like that. Let me ask you about what's happening in some of the facilities that you oversee. Um, today, the president also tweeted there have been great reviews of children's detention centers. We know the vice president went down and toured multiple facilities, one of them being a children's center. The House Oversight Committee this week released a report saying there are at least still 30 children separated from their parents for more than a year who haven't been reunited with them and have not been released to somebody else to take care of them. So do you understand why facts like that make it hard for anyone in Congress, Democrats say, to trust the administration with holding children in detention or potentially for longer periods of time, as some are proposing? So what, what I would say is facts matter all the way around. Neither does the rhetoric that's out there. That's absolutely false. But that, this that, is a House oversight report. Yeah, again, you said facts are important. And I'm saying I agree facts are important. You agree that just, that is just, a fact, This thir- the 30 children who continue to be separated. Yes, we, we've been talking okay. about that for a long time. And again, they're, they're, they're making progress to reunite those families. That happened a long time ago. But again, w- what we're talking about now, let's talk about facts. And the facts are that, that we've been asking Congress for a very long time for the supplemental, for example, right? Because we've agreed that children should not be in facilities that Border Patrol have. They're holding facilities. They were never designed That's for That's the four and a half billion that was just Yes, ma'am. And so so the four and a half billion we've been asking three and a half billion of that went to HHS. I'm not in that department, but yet I'm asking for the supplemental to to get HSS the funding they need. So the children, for example, could get out of the Border Patrol holding facilities where they don't belong. We were we were asking that for months and Congress sat on their hands and didn't provide that funding. Well, that funding you do have now. The vice president is working on this this program two weeks ago that some of these some of these conditions are unacceptable. We have video of the tour that he went on as well, where he saw where men are being held, different facility than where the children are. Um, And I want to read from the pool report written by Washington Post, Josh Dawsey. So the cages were so crowded, it would have been impossible for all of the men to lie in the concrete. There were 384 single men in the portal, no mats or pillows, some sleeping on concrete. When they saw the press arrive, the men began shouting and wanted to tell us they'd been in there 40 days or longer. They were hungry and wanted to brush their teeth. It was sweltering hot. Agents were wearing face masks. Are these acceptable conditions? So, first of all, the, the, the way I describe those conditions, I would not describe them uh, as the, they were described. But, but even, even so. This was the video. 
No, you, you, this is the video and this is a reporter's right, eyewitness account. Right, so I, I would not consider that sweltering hot. I was there alongside the vice president when I was there. But make no mistake, was it overcrowded? Absolutely. But, Margaret, we've been saying that for a very long time, that these conditions are overcrowded. So you agree I, it's unacceptable? Oh, it absolutely is unacceptable. So and, what are you doing and, to change those conditions now? So, As you said, that funding has been approved. Okay, but, but this is very important, though, is this could have been prevented in, in a couple of ways. Had Congress given the funding earlier than, than when we asked, it would have helped alleviate some of the overcrowding. But now. The other thing right now is we're consti- continuing to ask Congress. We need legislative fix. We need Congress to act right now. Senator Lindsey mm-hmm. Graham has a bill that he's trying to push forward right now that would absolutely overnight help eliminate the, what you saw uh, when we went down there with the vice president. Congress needs to act. They know it and yes. they're failing to do so. Well, we're going to talk to Senator Dick Durbin next. Thank you, Commissioner, who is working with uh, Senator Graham, whose legislation you mentioned there. Uh, Senator Durbin joins us from Chicago. Good morning to you, Senator. Good morning, Margaret. Uh, You're in one of the cities where these ICE arrests are expected to happen. Uh, What are you seeing out there? What are you hearing? I'm hearing two things. The fear level in the community, particularly in the Hispanic community, I've never seen at a higher level. Just this last Friday, I was handed this note by a a young girl who's a high school student. Uh, Her name is Guadalupe. She couldn't read it to me. She broke down crying. What she basically says in here is, I don't want to live in fear and I don't want to lose my mother and father. They've been here working hard. They never broke the law. They just want to be part of the future of this city, this country, and give me a chance. The second thing that I'm feeling across this community is a mobilization, a belief that we are all in this together, that we're going to stand together in support of families just like this who simply want a chance to be part of America's future. Senator, you said that many of these people haven't broken the law. According to ICE, 90 percent of migrants they arrest have a criminal conviction, criminal charges, or they've illegally reentered the country after being removed. Are you arguing that law enforcement shouldn't be enforcing the law as it is written? I will just tell you this. If someone has come to this country and broken the law, they've disqualified themselves, as far as I'm concerned. By entering illegally, though, by definition, they have broken the law, whether it's criminal or civil infraction is matter for debate. Yes, but that's that's a significant difference. And even Mr. Morgan uh, went to that point. He said if there was an additional criminal violation, I feel the same way about a serious criminal violation. They've disqualified themselves. But what we're finding is, as we did with the zero tolerance policy, the simple fact of crossing the border and perhaps having a technical legal violation at that point is being used as a basis for deportation of people who otherwise have nothing in their background or nothing in their record that's a danger to us. That's when you get into trouble. That's when you start uh, not only deporting people uh, who may be serious offenders, but innocent people who are trying to lead a good life here and want to have a chance. That's the difference. Senator, President Trump tweeted this morning that Female Democrat congresswomen who are foreign born, he suggests, should go back to where they came from. What do these comments do to your attempts to work across the aisle? Do you consider that a racist tweet? I can just tell you that when we are dealing with mass arrest and mass deportation and that kind of careless rhetoric by the president, it doesn't help one bit. My mother was an immigrant to this country, brought here by my grandparents from Lithuania under the control of czarist Russia. Do I fit into the president's category? I'm going to stick with the United States as my mother did and my brothers did, trying to make this a better country. And I say the same for these members of Congress. Uh, And I think there's only one in particular he's pointing to. The fact that they went through refugee camps 
came to the United States, clawed their way into an existence, and eventually were elected. Thank goodness. That is part of what America holds as a dream for people around the world, and the president should not diminish it. Why, we talk about you trying to work across the aisle, why didn't you go on this tour with Republicans and the vice president down to see the border facilities on Friday? I've been there. I was just there eight weeks ago uh, in the El Paso area. I'm going to return in the next week. I, I watched as this group was in formation, and it became apparent to me it was more about public relations than really getting down to serious policy discussions. Well, we've I'm shown the video, and not all of it is necessarily favorable to the administration. Uh, wouldn't it have been helpful for you to be there alongside Republicans to make the statement that you are working across the aisle or trying to? Well, Senator Lindsey Graham, Republican, and Chairman of the Judiciary Committee and I are still in serious conversation about dealing with the policy uh, we will continue to. I've been there. I'm going back. I think the circumstances which are shown on the video were bad. What I saw were even worse. These kids in cages were not part of the video. I can understand that there's sensitivity to exposing them to public review. But the fact is, it's happening. And America is rejecting this approach by the Trump administration. They don't want to see more with these mass arrests and deportations. Families Mm -hmm. split apart. Now, listen to this. We're hearing from the administration the serious humanitarian challenges at the border. Those are going to be multiplied now by these ICE raids across the United States as families are divided and young people are sent to more detention facilities. It is not going to make it any better. You, the administration says that the work you and Senator Graham are doing is essentially the only game in town. Uh, you've said there are, are at least five or six areas of common ground that Democrats in the Senate and the House could support. What are they? Well, I can give you several of them right off the top of my head. First, unlike the president, we happen to believe that we need to have foreign assistance to these three countries in Central America. It's the only only hope we have to stabilize the situation so fewer people are exiting, trying to find their way into the United States. Secondly, when it comes to the transporters and smugglers, come down on them like a ton of bricks. I have no sympathy for human traffickers, wherever they may be. Stiffer penalties, more enforcement, I'm for it. More immigration court judges, of course. A faster uh, process for hearing of these cases, particularly those involving children, of course. We ought to reinstate what Obama had, and that was in the embassies of these three countries. We could have young people and perhaps adults as well applying for asylum in country, not making that dangerous, expensive trip to but the But if United they're States endangered border. in the country that they are fleeing from, how does applying for asylum from that same country protect them? You put your finger on one of the flaws in what I've just said. We answer it by saying if we can find a place in Mexico, for example, maybe under United Nations supervision, where there is a safe venue for them to apply uh, for asylum status in the United States, I'm open to that conversation. But we have to understand, and uh, State Representative Delia Ramirez just came back from Guatemala. She and I met this this weekend. The situation is desperate in that country. The people have nowhere to turn. Gangs extortion, uh, threats of uh, rape and murder that are going on constantly. They're going to risk their lives because they know staying in Guatemala Mm -hmm. in many circumstances is deadly. Senator Durbin, thank you very much. We will be back with former Homeland Security Secretary Jay Johnson. Memories make us laugh and cry and sometimes cringe when we look back at our fashion choices. But in between flashbacks of bowl cuts and dad jeans, our memories are fading and so is the old media that holds them. Hi, I'm Adam Baselogger. And I'm Nick Mako, and we're the founders of Legacy Box. Legacy Box is the easiest and safest way to preserve your family memories. Here's how it works. Fill Legacy Box with your outdated media. 
we professionally digitize and send them back on DVDs, thumb drive, or the cloud. Look, those forgotten home movies, VHS tapes, film reels, and photos are degrading right before your eyes. Experience peace of mind and enjoy reliving the glory days. Join more than half a million families who have already trusted Legacy Box. Save your memories today. Visit LegacyBox.com save. And for a limited time, get 40% off your order. That's LegacyBox.com save for 40% off. LegacyBox.com save. Secretary Jay Johnson served in the Obama administration, and he joins us from New York this morning. Uh, good morning to you, Mr. Secretary. Uh, President Obama deported three million migrants from the United States. You were secretary at that time. How is what President Trump is trying to do any different? Well, first, Margaret, uh, I have to say, Mr. Morgan ducked your question about the president's tweet. I will not. Um, I cannot believe a president of the United States would make a statement about foreign-born members of Congress suggesting they they go back from where they from where they came from. And what the president needs to appreciate, in addition to it being offensive, you are undermining your very own administration's efforts at working with Congress constructively on what Mr. Morgan referred to as needed legislative fixes. And so. I, Americans should not become numb to this kind of, of language and, and offensive statements. And we need to work with Congress and the executive branch in order to get anything done. So in the Obama administration, certainly the last few years I served as Secretary of Homeland Security, we prioritized from within the interior uh, deporting those who are convicted felons. You have to also have as a priority those apprehended at the border for the sake of border security, but the number of deportations over time in the Obama administration actually went down while the percentage of those deported who were convicted felons and who were uh, in local jails uh, went up. And it's all about enforcing our immigration laws, but in a way that is fair and humane and promotes public safety. And that was our priority. And on day one Mm -hmm. of this administration, the president literally tore up those priorities. And so now... The president seeing and, and these, 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 sorry, go ahead, go ahead. sorry. Uh, the president, some in his administration have said there are up to one million migrants that have pending orders of removal against them. Is, is it realistic to say that many people can be deported? Uh, no, it is not. And it's important for people to know their rights in this circumstance. If someone from ICRO comes to uh, someone's home, unless they have a warrant, uh, that person is not required to to admit them. Uh, they have a right to remain silent. They have a right to a lawyer and they should not be deported from this country unless there has been a final order of deportation by an immigration judge after the individuals had an opportunity to go through the appellate process and make whatever claims for asylum uh, they, they have. And so there must be a final order of removal. Very often, if someone's ordered deported in absentia without being present in court, they have a right to a rehearing. And so it's important for people, particularly today and over the next week, to know exactly what their rights are. We've been talking about the conditions at uh, facilities, detention facilities of many forms uh, under the Trump administration. I want to show an image of you touring a facility in Arizona back in 2014. President Trump often Mm -hmm. refers to uh, the language referring to these chain linked fence dividers, cages, as some call them, as uh, 
unique that the Obama administration is doing, though, all of this in a way that he just had to continue, that he is doing things essentially the same way. He inherited the policy. What's so different? Well, there are a number of things different, Margaret. First, uh, there was no zero tolerance policy in the Obama administration. We did not separate families as a policy and practice. And the photograph you showed, I remembered that visit well. It was Arizona. It was June 2014 during the spike we had then, though the numbers were not as high as they are now. And under the law, if you have an unaccompanied child cross the border, DHS within 72 hours is required to turn that child over to to HHS. And in that 72-hour period, uh, we needed to have places like the one we set up temporarily in Arizona uh, to, to house the kids until they could be placed with HHS. And the partitions you see, some call them cages, are meant to separate um, uh, the, the women from, from the men, the girls from the boys. But these were temporary. What that photograph doesn't show is I probably spent half my time at that facility actually inside those fenced-in areas talking to the, the young boys and girls about their situation and about the conditions. All right. Secretary Johnson, thank you for your time. We'll be back in a moment. Don't go away. Are you having trouble sleeping? NFL players have been coached. Blue light from smart devices, it can affect your sleep. They'll even wear blue blocker glasses in the evening for improved sleep. Others will try tart cherry juice and smoothies. Not only can it help fight inflammation, but to help you sleep, it's got high amounts of natural melatonin that's beneficial for sleep. The other night, my girlfriend told me I was snoring way too much and even the earplugs weren't helping. So the next day, she took me to the Sleep Number store. Because if I was snoring, at least she could get a good night's sleep on a Sleep Number bed. Sleep Number beds allow you to adjust on each side to your ideal firmness, comfort, and support. The Sleep Number 360 smart bed senses your movement and automatically adjusts to keep you sleeping comfortably through the night. With Sleep IQ technology inside the bed, it tracks how you're sleeping so you can know every morning how well you've slept and gain insights for your best sleep. Experience the smart, effortless comfort of the Sleep Number 360 smart bed. Find your competitive edge with proven quality sleep from $999. Sleep Number is the official sleep and wellness partner of the NFL. You'll only find Sleep Number at one of their 575 Sleep Number stores nationwide. Find the one nearest you at sleepnumber.com slash cadence. That's sleepnumber.com slash C-A-D-E-N-C-E. Sleep Number. the nation. It is time now for some political analysis from our panel. Ben Dominich is the founder and publisher of Federalist. Kelsey Snell is a congressional reporter for NPR. And Tolu Olorunipa, one of these days I'm going to get it right, covers the White House for the Washington Post. Tolu, help me. How do I say your last name better? Olorunipa. Olorunipa. I think I said it once correctly. (laughs) But we're so glad to have you back here. Um, I want to start off with the tweet that the president, series of them, that the president put out this morning uh, targeting members of Congress, specifically uh, female members who he says, he doesn't name them, but says should go back to where they came from. Um, Tolu, uh, this reaction 
is what? I mean, we're putting up on screen four individuals, only one of whom was foreign born. It seems to be who the president is suggesting uh, should go home. Uh, Yeah. Jay Johnson said earlier that we shouldn't get numb to this type of rhetoric. We have actually gotten somewhat numb to this type of rhetoric from the president because it's par for the course. This is a type of uh, campaigning he's going to do in advance of 2020 sort of promoting division, promoting divisive messages. Um, He wants this election to be about immigration. If you look at the citizenship question, if you look at these rates that are going on, if you look at this tweet uh, about, you know, congresswomen who, for the most part, are Americans, or actually all of them are American citizens, most most of them are actually American-born, the president wants to sort of use division as a a tool for his uh, re-election. And his supporters will say, you know, don't parse the president's words. He's making the argument that, you know, all of these people are privileged to be in the best country on earth and they shouldn't be so negative about the country. Uh, but one thing he's doing is actually uniting uh, what was a very fractured Democratic caucus with Nancy Pelosi uh, speaking out negatively about some of these congresswomen, some of them pushing back over the last week. And you've seen her come out with a tweet sort of uh, coming to their defense and and going against the president. And he is sort of the best unifier for the Democrats. And by inserting himself into this argument, he is making some of those fights from the past be much less uh, of of the part of the focus. And now they're trying to unify and figure Mm -hmm. out how they can take him Ben, I was looking online after the president said this, and there are a number of members of Congress who are foreign born, many of them who actually are allies of the president. Mm-hmm. Um, this targeting of these individuals, it's been suggested, is a flat out racist attack. I don't Will Republicans see it that way. I don't know that they'll see it uh, necessarily that way, though. I do think that, you know, in this context, I mean, the only one of these uh, four members of Congress that you're talking about who was foreign born is Ilhan Omar, who is obviously herself engaged in some of the most vile rhetoric when it comes to anti-Semitic speech and the like um, in ways that have, you know, obviously come up in the Congress before in ways that I think have frustrated Speaker Pelosi. The fact is that this week we found uh, a real gift for the president in terms of the animosity that was being aired between some of these more progressive members of the, of the conference and uh, the speaker herself. And I think when the president engages in this kind of behavior, it it undoes, to your point, uh, a lot of the the uh, assistance that he's getting from the uh, fractious nature of, of these uh, backs and back and forth between more extreme members of uh, the sort of left wing of the Democratic caucus uh, and those who want to run a more centrist campaign, one that is about restoring normalcy to uh, political life in America, which is certainly, you know, the main thrust of the uh, mm-hmm. the Biden campaign and others uh, and others who want to achieve that kind of message. I don't think that this is a situation where the president is doing himself any favors. Kelsey, when earlier in the week before the president tweeted this, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said that the speaker, by singling her out along with the squad, not naming them, but in a different interview in the week prior, had talked about them not holding with the caucus and voting uh, with leadership on specific issue related to immigration. Is any singling out of these individuals who do have death threats against them going to continue to, to be a theme and, and a dangerous one? Well, Pelosi later said she wasn't really trying to single out those specific people. She was trying to single out division in the party, whether or not that's read that way by the people who support these, the, the four women that we mentioned, uh, is another question altogether. I AOC think, said it was targeting women of color. And she, yes, and she did do a little bit of cleanup afterwards, talking to reporters, saying she thought this was all over and was trying to move on, though we saw on Twitter over the weekend that that wasn't necessarily the case. The fight kind of continued to play out. I think the question is whether or not the people 
people who are directly involved in this are ready to move on. We, I think that in, you know, as Ben said, it would be a really big gift to Democrats to have the president intervening here. But the activists who support the more progressive members aren't really ready to move on. We saw that uh, at the NetRoots conference. They are upset. And it will be up to Democrats to find a new way to move forward and to find a new way to talk to one another. And, you know, in some ways, they have to do it quickly mm-hmm. because they're about to go out on August recess and not be in Washington for over a month. And that amount of time when these people are back at home talking to their constituents really often changes kind of the path of Congress for the year. Ben, I asked you, if you, what do you think Republicans will do about the president's tweet? Mm. I mean, the, the usual answer is, oh, I didn't see it. <laughs> Can Republicans claim that they didn't see these series of tweets from the president that many do consider to be racist? Should they be distancing themselves from it? Well, I mean, I don't think they can claim that realistically. I mean, you know, we, we play all sorts of games. I mean, this is kind of like those uh, those comments from, you know, athletes that they don't listen to the sports talk radio. You know, you can't really believe that on its on its face. But again, I think that the context here is one where Democrats have a real division within their party between those who want to run a more centrist uh, uh, campaign in 2020, one that is more, much more likely to win and to take back the White House, and those who are sort of newly woke, who are much more radical on a lot of these different subjects, uh, and who want a much more aggressive progressive agenda in response to what they view as the overreach of, of President Trump and his administration. I think that's a, a divide that isn't going to be solved uh, in uh, in a very quick term. And to Kelsey's point, it kind of needs to be mm-hmm. because they need to be united on this front in order to take him on. But in terms of political usefulness, Tolu, uh, this, this overlay of the president's rhetoric uh, and the context in which what should be, as many would argue, standard law enforcement operations like these arrests, it, it changes the tone of everything. And it comes at a time when the president is running for re-election, immigration being one of the key platforms. Is that the prism through which everything should be seen right now? Yeah, you have. Is that the motivation for the raids? You have to look at all of this from the 2020 point of view. I mean, these raids may have happened either way, but the president decided to go out in front of it and tweet about it and sort of make it into this big thing where he talks about millions of people being brought out of the country. He wants to show his base, which he believes is going to be the determining factor of this election, that he's doing everything possible to fulfill his promises, whether it's the wall, whether it's putting a question about citizenship on the census, you know, overruling his legal department and the Justice Department and, and tr- trying to fight for the citizenship question on the census. He wants to constantly be showing his face that he's turning up the notch and doing as much as possible on this immigration issue because the images that are coming out of the southern border for him is actually an image of failure, that he mm-hmm. said he was going to clean up the, the border, he was going to stop people from coming across, he was going to build a wall, and now we're seeing record numbers of families coming across, and it's a, it's a, a sign of failure of his administration not being able to do things. Now he can talk about the Democrats not mm-hmm. not helping, but when he said that he was going to fix this problem in 2016, he's having to campaign on the same issue in 2020. Margaret, he's doing this because he's failed in that in those respects. He promised a wall. He promised a crackdown in all these different ways. And the fact is that this administration has shown us mm-hmm. how much they've stumbled over their own message, how much they've stumbled over their own policy in so many respects, including having acting people in these various jobs who can't actually drive the train on policy. Uh, and this is a way to try to make up for that. But it's it's going to be something where he's going to have to convince his own base that he hasn't failed in this respect. And I think that's going to be a hard ask. And 16 total. That was what we tallied up here in terms of acting officials, whether they be secretaries, cabinet level members, agency heads, 16 total just acting 
not actually confirmed, not officially in the job. Kelsey, does the president have any incentive or ability to get these nominees confirmed? He certainly has the ability, and Republicans in the Senate that I t- talked to say they would like very much to have their, you know, their role of advising consent returned to them by this president. But it doesn't help him. He he enjoys the acting secretaries. He said that many he said times that before. In an interview in February with us, and it, it, he says it gives him more flexibility. Now, the senators, the one that, when you talk to them, say that this is not good for the way the country functions. It's not good for, you know, keeping the separation of powers. But they don't have much power to take back, you know, the, the, the advising consent role. They have done a lot mm-hmm. over many, many, many years, if not decades, to, to cede power to the executive. And there are a lot of people I talk to, Republicans included, who have a lot of questions about why they did that and, yeah. you know, where they can go from here. We have to leave the conversation there. But good to talk to the three of you today. Uh, we will be back in a moment. I used to think that all diet and weight loss plans were the same. Well, not anymore, because I found Noom. Noom is a new and totally different approach to losing weight and getting healthy that uses psychology and small goals to help change your habits. So it's easy to lose the weight and keep it off for good. Noom combines the power of technology with real human support, offering as little or as much help as you want along the way. And since Noom is an app, it's always with you and easy to use, which makes it super easy to stay on track and reach your goals. Plus, it's really simple to get started. Just go online, answer a few quick questions, and they'll create a personalized program just for you. Noom helped me lose my old way of thinking about food and dieting. So what do you have to lose? Visit Noom.com slash podcast, N-O-O-M dot com slash podcast, and start your 14-day trial today. Like they say, change your habits, change your mind, and change for good with Noom. From Houston, Texas, in color, a special one-hour version of Face the Nation, the first exclusive television interview with the Apollo 11 crew who returned on Thursday from the nationwide tour celebrating their historic first steps on the moon. Millions in New York, Chicago, and Los Angeles turned out to greet the returning space pioneers. That was Walter Cronkite anchoring our broadcast back on August 17th, 1969. Almost 50 years later, we are joined by NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine. Thank you and good morning. Good morning. It's great to be here. Uh, This is uh, an incredible anniversary week for NASA. It is. Um, The last man to walk on the moon was 1972. Jack... uh Gene Cernan. (laughs) (laughs) You you get an A. Tell me, though, about your plans for Artemis, the plan to put humans back on the moon just five years from now. That's right. So uh, we want to go back to the moon sustainably, in other words, uh, to stay. Uh, But we also want to keep our eye on what is President Trump's goal. What is his vision? He wants to put an American flag on Mars. So we go to the moon so that we can learn how to live and work on another world and ultimately have more access to the solar system than ever before so that we can get, no kidding, to Mars. But here's, I think, the important point about Artemis specifically. Um, in the 1960s, we, we love Apollo. What an amazing program, uh, contest of great powers, the United States of America in the Cold War, and of course we came out on top. But I think the important thing is, in those days... All of our astronauts came from test pilots and fighter pilots, and there were no opportunities for women. Today, under the Artemis program, we have a very diverse, highly qualified astronaut corps that includes women, and Artemis, in Greek mythology, 
happens to be the twin sister of Apollo. So now when we go back to the moon, uh, and she was the goddess of the moon, by the way. So now when we go back to the moon, uh, we go with all of America. And I think that's a great message. So the first steps in 2024 will be by woman? That's the goal. A female astronaut. Yes. Um, but all of this requires uh, a rocket that's never flown, a space capsule that hasn't flown, a lunar lander that hasn't even been designed yet. Given the track record, how realistic is that five-year timeline? So the way I talk about this, there's two risks. There's technical risk, and then there's political risk. We would be on the moon right now if it weren't for the political risk. We would be on Mars, quite frankly, by now, had it not been for the political risk. But as you've identified, we did six... What do you mean political risk? You mean funding? I'm talking about funding. So in the past, in the 1990s and in the early 2000s, we made efforts to go back to the moon and onto Mars. And in each case, the program was too long. It took too, too long and too much money. Uh, what the president said is in order to retire the political risk, we want to go faster. We want to go within five years. The vice president uh, delivered a message at the National Space Council, and he said we want to go back to the moon within five years. Then they amended the president's budget request to give us the resources necessary mm-hmm. to make it a reality, um, and that's where we are. But then the president tweeted, NASA should not be talking about going to the moon. We did that 50 years ago. We should be focused on much bigger things. Is he fully on board with what you just laid out? A hundred percent. I talked to him after that tweet. I wanted to make sure we were in alignment. We absolutely are. He understands. And in fact, he said to me, I know we've got to go to the moon to get to Mars. But he said, what is that generational achievement that will inspire all of Americans? It's putting an American flag on Mars. He said, make sure you're committed to the to the flag on Mars. You said before you believe in science and you believe that humankind is contributing to climate change. Have you suggested some kind of major Earth initiative? What is NASA doing about the planet we are currently living on? So what NASA's job is, is to study the Earth in every part of the electromagnetic spectrum. And we have been doing that. We continue to do that. And we share that data with the entire world. And we do it for free to the entire world. And you share that with President Trump, who has been a skeptic of it's human available. contribution to climate it's, change? It's available to the entire world for free. It's online. Anybody can have access to it. And of Does course, he believe you when you lay this out to him? So I'm, I'm one agency. There are other agencies in the federal government, EPA, NOAA, others. When I talk to the president, I'm talking about space exploration in general. Mm-hmm. But we do have a role to study the earth, and it is changing. And the president is very committed to clean water and clean air. Know this. NASA is spending as much money on studying the earth as we ever have. And, of course, when you look at the comparison between what we're investing in studying the Earth and what others are investing, look at all of our partners on the International Space Station, 15 countries, the European Space Agency, Russia, um, Canada, Japan. Uh, We are spending as much as the rest of them combined. America's rivalry with the Soviet Union helped to fuel uh, some of the initiative 50 years ago. Do you see a scenario where uh, either China's fueling that for the United States or there's the chance to partner with China? So, uh, quite frankly, at this point, neither one of those. But you're right. Apollo was a contest of great powers. We're trying to demonstrate technological prowess. And the, the goal was to demonstrate that our political system and economic system was superior. And in fact, we achieved that. But know this. <laughs> We're doing amazing things. We're so far ahead of China right now, it's not even a comparison. Um, Just recently, we had the Crew Dragon attached to the International Space Station. Before that, we landed on the far side of Mars. For the eighth time in human history, we landed on Mars. The United States of America is the only country that's been able to achieve that. Mm -hmm. We're now entering orbit around Bennu for the first time in human history, doing an asteroid return mission. And then, of course, uh, 
brilliant images of mm-hmm. Pluto and that same spacecraft now four billion miles from Earth, giving us more science than ever before. We're, Thank you. We are winning. Thank you. And we will be watching. We hope all of you will all this week on CBS. Stay with us. What's your next adventure? Everyone deserves a chance to do what they love. Pacific Life helps you reach financial goals while you go after your personal ones. Plans change over time, and your financial solutions can too. Pacific Life has a variety of financial solutions that can help you complement your life goals and passions while managing the uncertainties. Backed by more than 150 years of experience, you can count on Pacific Life to be there so you can go out and keep living your best life. Pacific Life is one of the most dependable and experienced insurers in the industry and has been named one of the 2019 world's most ethical companies by the Ethisphere Institute. The freedom to go after whatever is next for you? That's the power of Pacific. Ask a financial professional about how Pacific Life can help give you the freedom to do what you love. Or visit www.pacificlife.com. For some perspective on how Apollo 11 first got off the ground, we spoke earlier with presidential historian Douglas Brinkley. His new book is American Moonshot, John F. Kennedy and the Great Space Race. What did the Great Space Race do for America? Oh, it lifted America's morale incredibly. You know, the 1960s, we were mired in the Vietnam War. Uh, We had dealt with the assassinations of John F. Kennedy and Bobby Kennedy and um, and Martin Luther King. And then we kept thinking, can we get to the moon? Can we fulfill John F. Kennedy's pledge? I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth. And so it was bipartisan in nature. It cost $25 billion. That's $180 billion in today's currency. Uh, but the American public said, let's do it. And they kept funding it uh, via congressional appropriations. If you try to look at it in the calculation made to get all that funding, the billions you talk about, that there were those in Congress who also said, why don't we spend this money at home, alleviate American poverty? There were critics of the moonshot, um, many. Um, uh, on the right, Barry Goldwater, senator of Arizona, wanted the money to go to the U.S. Air Force. On the left, people like uh, liberals, Walter Mondale, J. William Fulbright, senators said what you're suggesting. Let's go put money into poverty programs and into schools. With that said, there was always enough appropriations. And particularly after John F. Kennedy was assassinated, uh, Lyndon Johnson changes the Cape Canaveral to the Kennedy Space Center. And we start going to the moon to fulfill John F. Kennedy's pledge in a way to honor the martyred slain president. A lot of Americans may not know the involvement of Nazi scientists in the space program and a personal relationship between Kennedy and a scientist called uh, Werner von Braun. Who is he? Well, uh, von Braun was the great German rocketeer of the 1920s, 1930s, uh, and he works for Adolf Hitler in World War II. He's an SS officer, and he develops vengeance weapons for Hitler. But von Braun always has an eye for the moon and the stars. Uh, The big deal is how can you put a projectile 62 miles up, breaking Earth's gravity grip and going into outer space? And von Braun's the one who accomplishes this feat uh, during World War II. But alas, um, the war ends. Von Braun could be charged for war crimes for building these weapons and using Jewish slave labor. 
um, to build them. And he makes a deal with the Truman administration to become part of the U.S. Army and start building missiles for the United States. And it's Werner von Braun's Saturn V that is Apollo 11 that brought our astronauts to the moon. And it was the American deal to bring those Nazi scientists to the U.S. that really irked and concerned the Soviets. Very much so, because it was the greatest technology heist, maybe in world history, where suddenly we had all of the Nazi rocket and missile assets. There's a moral conundrum going on here of whether we should have done this, but we did. But from 1945 to 1949, the United States had a nuclear monopoly. We were the superpower. Suddenly, under Joe Stalin, Russia had the atomic bomb and the hydrogen bomb. They put up the first intercontinental ballistic missile, the R-7. Then, October of 1957, Sputnik, the first Earth satellite. So there's a feeling in the mid-50s that Eisenhower's asleep at the wheel, and we're getting our clock cleaned by the Soviet Union. And it's out of Sputnik that in 1958, Eisenhower um, creates NASA as civilian space exploration, announces Mercury astronauts, we pick seven, and then we start looking, can we put an astronaut into space? And then when Kennedy's president, the question is, can we put a man on the moon? Kennedy, you're right, knew that there was a value to this space program beyond the technology and the dominance. He knew this was almost a made-for-TV moment. TV is a big part of it. One of the great things about the United States is space program. We had transparency. On May 5th, 61, we put up Alan Shepard, Mercury astronaut from New Hampshire, only 15 minutes up, 15 minutes down, but he became a space hero. And Kennedy loved basking in the glory of John Glenn and Gus Grissom and Scott Carpenter, Wally Schirra, and they became Kennedy's space cadets. Kennedy even had naysayers in his own family. You write about his dad calling White House aides and saying, damn it, I thought Jack was better than that. We're going to go broke with this nonsense. His own father was saying, what are you doing? Well, and so did everybody at NASA. Kennedy suddenly going to a joint session of Congress out of nowhere saying we're going to the moon. And at NASA, they said, you've got to be kidding me. We don't have any technology to do this. This isn't uh, a stunt. And so Kennedy got fully behind this. It was good TV ratings. It was technology was what the new frontier was about. He wanted to beat the Soviets. Um, and he saw the public pulling together on going to the moon, the Apollo program. And CBS. Our network also had its own role in this entire enterprise. Uh, not only were CBS executives consulted uh, in the idea of a space program and what the public reception would be, but then it was a documentary that inspired uh, President Kennedy as well. Absolutely. Oh. Let's give Walter Cronkite a lot of credit um, for one. He adopted space as his ballywick. I'm Walter Cronkite. Cronkite, it was unabashed that the greatest accomplishment that the United States did in his entire lifetime was Apollo 11, was going to the moon. He was a, he was a fanboy of NASA. Could America rally and do something, this visionary, now and in a way that galvanizes people through various presidencies and keeps that commitment. 
That's what the idea of the moonshot means to people. Um, the idea that Americans, short of war, can do something grand collectively together. There's still more than nostalgia in Apollo 11. It's a kind of a fig leaf of hope that in the coming decades, the United States can once again get their act together and do big, bold things like we used to do. You can see our full interview with Doug Brinkley on facethenation.com. That's it for today. Be sure to tune in tomorrow night for the debut of the CBS Evening News with Nora O'Donnell. For Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan, and we will see you right here next week. Today's guests were Acting Commissioner of U.S. Customs and Border Protection, Mark Morgan, Democratic Senator Dick Durbin, former Department of Homeland Security Secretary Jay Johnson, and NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Allison Hawley. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter and Instagram. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our digital network, CBSN, at 11 a.m., 3 p.m., and 6 p.m. Eastern every Sunday. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings early and ad-free on the 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Farian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame. 
dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.